0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports weekly cyber report sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Meradian. Joining us today for our year in review are Dr. Jim Lewis, the director of the Strategic Technologies Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, one of the nation's leading uh, cyber minds uh, and Mark Montgomery, a retired US Navy Rear Admiral, who is now the Senior Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, another of the nation's leading cyber minds, who was also a senior advisor on the bipartisan Cyber uh, Solarium Commission 2.0. Uh, guys, uh, welcome back to the program. It's always a pleasure having you on.
1: Vago, thank you for having us on the show.
0: Thank you, Vargas. Uh, An absolute pleasure. And before we get started, our daily coverage is sponsored by Bell. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security, as I mentioned, sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Gumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of the Halifax International Security Forum and the Reagan National Defense Forum. We're sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Uh, guys, thanks very much uh, again for joining us on this last program of the year where we um, look back at the year for what it tells us on what to expect in the year uh, ahead. Um, Mark, um, but first a little bit of sort of breaking news uh, that we need uh, to cover in Mark, uh, let's uh, start off with uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, eight hundred and fifty-eight billion dollars passed by the House and Senate, and then we have a one point seven trillion dollar uh, appropriations uh, that is, uh, what, you know, uh, getting wrapped up as we. Uh, record this. Walk us through, uh, you know, we heard from Chairman Jim Langevin, um, the outgoing Democrat uh, from uh, Rhode Island, uh, who has been instrumental to a lot of cyber uh, legislation uh, on last week's program uh, on some of the things that are going to be uh, in the NDAA. Walk us through the cyber elements of the NDAA, as well as uh, on appropriations and what it means.
2: Well, thanks, Vago. So uh, you know, it was the third consecutive uh, ND, National Defense Authorization Act with it with it a separate cyber section and with you know more than you know if you count dod and non-DOD more than 40 cybersecurity provisions. So again, you know the Senate Armed Service Committee, House Armed Service Committee staffers really did a good job in tackling cyber. No, no other warfare area, I think, really gets this kind of quality uh, work year over year. And that's due to the quality of the staff, but also still the relatively bipartisan nature of the issue. Um, Big, big uh, items in there were within Department of Defense. There was uh, the establishment of Assistant Secretary of Defense for Cyber uh, Policy, uh, taking it away from uh, John Plum, who was completely overloaded already with space, missile defense, nuclear weapons countering weapons of mass destruction and cyber, and now moves into its own area. I think that's good. If we all recognize it's probably not gonna be a cyber force anytime soon because of the recent establishment of Space Force, then you you do need an Assistant Secretary of Defense that's uniquely holding the services accountable for train, maintain, equip, taking the pressure off U.S. Cyber Command, trying to do that where, where they're just not effective in telling the services what to do. That's the biggest DOD one. There was also some great guidance to um, Cyber Command on force generation, um, uh, stati- you know, providing force generation planning, providing force readiness planning, really giving CyberComm some tools to beat the services over the head well, they wait for that Assistant Secretary of Defense. And then also some acquisition enhancements. These are all follow-ons to 2021, language in the FY21 National Defense Authorization Act. Outside of um, Department of Defense, there was still some work done. Now, less than normal, because we had a pretty rich Infrastructure Act, CHIPS Act, and 2022 approach. But the big ones there were the Cyber Diplomacy Act was passed, uh, ensconcing Nate Fix, you know the Bureau of Cyberspace and Digital Policy at State Department, uh, you know, ensconcing it in law. Um, I think that's important. That'll make it easier to appropriate and grow it. Um, you know, a State Department might, you know, push, you know, uh, have second thoughts about things. You know, having it in law really gets it done. And we've had a president in the past, the Secretary of State, get rid of this whole idea. So good to put it in law. Um, the other big one, I think, was a FedRAMP reauthorization. Um, There's some disappointments for us that the systemically important critical infrastructure didn't happen. I think that's a reattack for next year. The Joint Collaborative Environment's in a study. know, NSA didn't help get it across the finish line. So Congress said, well, NSA, go ahead and tell us how you want this written exactly to get across the finish line. I I think that's probably a good move at this point. So all in all, a pretty good uh, National Defense Authorization Act.
0: Uh, And it's uh, pretty, pretty amazing uh, how many years in a row that we've had uh, investment is, you know, everybody uh, on this. Uh, program have called for doing a better job and, and the ball is, uh, is moving more quickly. Jim, uh, you've been a uh, longtime uh, constructive uh, critic uh, on what needs to be done. How do you assess the progress uh, to date uh, this year, last year, and including in uh, the legislation that's coming out of Congress in terms of improving um, our secure, collective national security?
1: Some of what's going on, Vago, is we've got uh, people who grew up in cybersecurity. So when you think of uh, Chris Inglis or Ann Newberger, Jen Easterly, uh, Matt Olson, um, and their teams, a lot of the people who are their deputies, these are folks who've been working on this stuff for more than a decade. And that expertise means I think we've made more progress in the last two years than in the preceding 20. Right? Uh, some of that is just Catching up with things that fell off the map in the previous administration, but a really strong team with a fairly clear agenda has, has helped the country do better. Uh, a lot of the incidents uh, that greeted the Biden administration, like colonial pipelines and the Chinese and others, that helped focus the mind. Solar winds, you know, on software and the need for better software, and then of course the war in Ukraine. So. Uh, A much more active environment, a much more dangerous environment, but a great team. And that's part of why we made progress. But on the Hill, we'll see what happens after Congressman Langevin leads, because he's been such a leader, but he has said that there are people who will be able to take his place. And you've got Angus King and Gallagher and others who um, probably will pick up the mantle. And uh, overall, we have a long ways to go, but we're in a lot better shape.
0: Uh, I, I would agree, and it's going to be very interesting to see what Mike Gallagher does uh, as chairman of the, select, the House Select Committee uh, on China and the cross connections that he's going to bring to this as a as a real interdisciplinary. Um, thinker, um, Jim. Let me um, ask you uh, one other question, and I want to go to the broader uh, war uh, lessons. and And Mark, I'll let you uh, start that off. But um, you know, some some very significant uh, cyber stories this year, and and one of them was the revelation earlier uh, this month, uh, both surprising and unsurprising. Right, unsurprising in that the United States. Uh, The National Security Agency and the U.S. Cyber Command have been working very aggressively to defend uh, national elections uh, after 2016, where there was a sense that not enough was done. 2018 was watershed year. 2020 was another year in which uh, U.S. uh, cyber operators played an important role. And now 2022, with General Nakasone um, revealing uh, the role that Cyber Command uh, played in executing a complex uh, campaign plan. Uh, it included hunt forward teams deployed to Eastern Europe. Uh, even though he has declined to discuss the nature, some of the specifics of those. Uh, operations. Uh, we know, for example, that you know, we apparently contacted Russia uh, disinformation and cyber units and even shut down the Internet Research uh, Agency. Um, Jim, walk us through what we're seeing, because one of the observations General Nakasone made is that each year you know, we're more effective and the amount of disinformation and cyber operations are reduced. And I should say the Iranians, Iranian uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is also part of this. Walk us through what we're seeing and how actually this kind of operate forward, defend forward is actually maybe paying dividends in the United States.
1: One of the things that's changed is that uh, the realization that a purely defensive approach uh, won't work, right? And maybe another thing that's changed, although people don't always say it publicly, is um, we're not doing really well at deterring people. So a defensive Approach, you know, building the Maginot Line in cyberspace, they can get around it, deterring them, they're not afraid of us. And I give uh, General Nakasone and others in the administration credit for taking on a more active role. Uh, it's not cyber war or whatever that means, but the US is uh, pushing back. The US is being assertive in cyberspace. And that's the only way we're going to improve the situation is when the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, um, realize it's not uh, an open game anymore, that they have an unobstructed uh, approach to doing things in the US. So I give them a lot of credit for that. And I think Ukraine, again, helped spur that. Um, The Ukrainian experience has shown that, let's call it active defense for the moment, active defense and defend forward. And those are the things you need to do to Reshape the environment in ways that favor us more than our opponents.
0: So you see, actually, a direct line between what we're doing uh, in defending our elections to uh, the kind of operations we're doing to defend the United States against Russia via Ukraine and a sort of a broader Ukraine war lesson standpoint.
1: Amazing, amazingly enough, it's the same people, <laughs> right? So, uh, the IRA Internet Research Agency. Uh, important. I mean, the, I think the guy who funded it was also funds the Wagner Group, if you Wagner Group, if you like uh, irony. But this is this is the GRU, and so going after the GRU and going after other Russian intelligence entities, going after the IRG, and going after doesn't mean um, it means direct engagement. It means interfering with their their capability to wage offensive operations. It is largely defensive, but I think taking a more assertive role. And the, the White House and General Nakasoni deserve some credit because, as you know, there are other parts of the government that would prefer to uh, not do anything. And this has been a big step forward.
0: Um, Mark, uh, you, uh, you know, both uh, in uniform and out, have been paying attention uh, to uh, this issue. What do you think are the big cyber operation lessons uh, learned uh, from Russia's war on Ukraine. You know, we, we keep, uh, and we heard about it a little bit at the Reagan uh, forum, you and I were there, uh, about sort of the cyber dog not barking, uh, I think is the way uh, that uh, Senator King said it. And, and part of I think what he said is that we're also doing a good job defending forward, which is part of uh, this, all of us have discussed this numerous times over the course of the year. Um, what's what are your kind of key Uh, takeaways and and you know is is this dog actually barking a little bit more loudly it's just that we're doing a good job muzzling that dog forward so that it doesn't bite
2: anybody over here well listen uh i think the lessons learned have to be looked at two distinct theaters of operation one there's a lot of lessons learned uh inside uh you know the russia ukraine conflict uh and then there's lessons learned about the strategic relationship between US and Russia, uh, which is where the dog hasn't uh, bit so far. So d- in, in the Russia-Ukraine one, the lessons learned are, are, are that the integration of, of cyber into kinetic operations requires a lot of planning, a lot of, of pre-work and effort um, that didn't occur because President Putin kept his card so close to his, his vest on this. I also think they planned for a three or five day operation and had at most three or five days worth of cyber targets fully vetted and ready to go. So, you know, it's a reminder to us that the integration, you know, when you look at cyber, cyber can sometimes be used as an independent tool, particularly for signaling. But it also its greatest value is sometimes as an integrated event, you know, taking down a satellite uh, system just prior to your Tomahawk missiles, you know, crossing the sea land interface. You know, that's a, a, a traditional kind of cyber tool that we think about. Um, right. That takes a ton of planning. And that planning, I don't believe happened in this Russian case. I'm not ready to say Russian, you know, cyber mil- you know, GRU or, or uh, Russian military cyber capabilities are non-existent. But I would say um, where, you know, when their planning was no longer valid, their cyber, integration failed so the one ex- the one example to you know the proof of that is that they did know they wanted to take down viasat on day 1 and they took down viasat on day 1 severely hampering ukrainian military communications um for which they needed the kind of resilience and redundancy provided by Elon Musk and starlink and by the use of uh, you know prol- proliferation of cell phones among their officers so that's the russia ukraine theater and there's a lot more in there that Jim and I could unpack but Right off the top, there's that. On the on the United States, I I think this is an issue where, you know, to you know, Senator King said, "Hey, it's cyber deterrence working." I would say it's more. I don't think we've reached whatever the tripwire was for for President Putin using his cyber tools directly against Western Europe or the United States. I think two things can do that. One, um, if the um, if the oil and gas um, if the oil and gas exports kick into um, into high gear. Um, you know, and really begin to impact uh, Russian ability to get cat. You know, to uh, to monetize their oil, and natural gas sales. Then you'll start to see Putin move more aggressively. Or two, if somehow this hacker army of the Ukrainians shifts from like distributed denial of service attacks and and website defacements and placing President Putin in pornographic images. If the, but if they shift to like taking down the Saint Petersburg um, electrical power grid then you're going to see a response from Putin and it's going to be against, you know, Western Europe or the United States, in my opinion.
0: Jim, uh, your sense on some of the key uh, lessons uh, learned uh, as as abundant as they are?
1: are. You know, the Ukraine war shows how to construct a a good national cyber defense for really any country. And so there's different parts. There's uh, making use of cloud services. There's developing strong partnerships with uh, the private sector and with your own citizens. There's having a rapid response. Uh, All these things are important. So I think Ukraine is a blueprint for defense moving forward. And one of the issues will be how do we make sure that the new national strategy when it comes out reflects some of those lessons. They're in there. but maybe it's time to move past some of the old uh, old thinking we have and say, here's what the Ukrainians did. A lot of countries, the Koreans, the Dutch, the, the anyone you can think of, they could copy the Ukrainian approach and it would probably make them more secure in cyberspace.
0: What, what's the old thinking? Um, that has to be discarded from your standpoint, right? I mean, you spent some time in Korea, uh, a country known for some new thinking. The Japanese have their new national security and defense strategies out. Uh, you mentioned the Dutch, another really very savvy cyber operator, by the way, um, uh, and one of the Maximator nations. What do what do you, what you are some of the things you think are old things that need to be jettisoned in the wake of all of this?
1: Well, I think that what we've seen is... Uh, it's, um and Mark touched on this, uh, coordination. You need coordination and offense between kinetic and cyber. You need coordination and defense among all the different parts because it's not gonna be state only. It's not gonna be just government agencies doing this. And it's not gonna be just your national entities doing this. And so Ukraine was lucky in that they had a, a number of companies uh, help them out in monitoring and response uh, in providing um, resilient services so i think that the this is a more distributed approach more of a partnership approach and so that's the biggest changes it's not it's not the government may have to organize this the government may have to coordinate it
2: but it's a partnership well look jim and i have used the term both of us a lot uh, over the last two years of resilience i think i think that's what a lot of this is about is building that resilience and, and when you ask what's the old thought the old thought is the thought that, like when I worked for Dick Clark twenty three years ago, and we wrote the National Infrastructure Assurance Plan, we kind of like you know we uh, you know um, you know we we wrote uh, a a strictly voluntary approach with some you know with loose confederations with between the government and the private in the private sector. That's old we'll think, and I think you're going to see in this national cyber strategy. I think Jim and Ver do it, and I agree a much more direct you know a direct thought thought process that, you know, 23 years of voluntary efforts have left us, you know, unprotected in a lot of critical right. structure areas. And, and um, you know, the, the clinical definition of insanity would be to to go off on it for a 24th year. So I think you're going to see in- Chris Inglis argue for a stronger regulatory approach. Look, can it be standards? Could, could If, you know, if in- industries wanted to get together and set a standard and collaborate with the government on it, that, that I think the government would still be open to that. And if I was a cloud service providers, I'd be working on that fast. Uh, but otherwise, I think you're going to see a, a stronger regulatory approach because at some point, the voluntary approach has got to be acknowledged as not functioning. And, and look, it's also on the government. The government's laissez-faire attitude to the sector risk management agencies where you have energy investing money properly, you know, $200 million budgets for CSER, 120 people. And you've got EPA, agriculture, health and you know public health and safety you know, hhs kind of running on fumes with two wood nickels to rub together with two or three people doing the work you know that's just completely unacceptable the government i get the you know private sector probably needs to get its act together that may involve regulation but government needs to get its act together and that's going to involve investments and resourcing and being a better partner both of those paradigms have to change in or we won't look like Ukraine. We'll look like a fragile, brittle um, national critical infrastructure.
1: Mark touched on a crucial point that it will be something for you to look at next year, but the, the all the drafts of the national strategy have used the word regulation, right? So there's a recognition that the market, private sector alone won't deliver this. How you do regulation in a way that doesn't trip over itself, um, how extensive it is, it looks like they've settled on keeping the uh, sector-specific approach and giving CISA, uh, uh, you know, a coordinating role. But I think the big change for 2024 will be how do we work through all the regulatory issues because there are places where um, government needs to coordinate. Uh, you mentioned software. Um, I don't know. I the, the example I always use is there was a hearing in the in I think it was the early 60s with all. Aud- all the car manufacturers saying that if the United States required them to put in seat belts, it would destroy the car industry because of the cost and people wouldn't pay for the additional cost and it was unnecessary. And it turned out to be complete nonsense and people compete on building safer cars. And the same is gonna be true on software. When you look at some of the the, um, forensics on where software comes from, you'd be shocked. I was shocked. Uh, So getting people to do SBOM will be a big step forward. Maybe it'll add some cost, but it will definitely be a trade for better security. So regulation, software, these are things to watch for in 2024.
0: Having covered uh, this uh, for decades, uh, I remember, uh, Mark, uh, that debate. uh, And of course, as a car guy, uh, Jim, uh, remember the case the car makers uh, made. And indeed, right? Uh, whether it was Volvo or Mercedes or any one of a number of companies were competing on, we make a safer car uh, ultimately. Uh, And now right folks won't buy a car unless it does have a five-star front and back rating, uh, for example. Uh, you know, The question I want to just briefly ask, because I want to get to ransomware and, and dig a little bit deeper, Jim, into uh, the software bill of origin and, and materials and indeed on hardware as well to try to identify these shortcomings and how much it's going to cost. I mean, I've, I've been asking this question of you guys, as well as Chairman Langevin and every, everybody else about how much it's going to cost us. But let me just quickly ask, have we crossed a, re- uh, a regulatory Rubicon because I remember interviewing members of Congress throughout the uh, 2000s, uh, the 2010s, and the whole notion was, well, you know, we don't need a nanny state and companies will invest on it to protect their own uh, intellectual property, which is all bunk, right? If people can short sheet cyber, they will, and they only pay attention to it if they're hit. Colonial Pipeline is a good example of that. Have we crossed a Rubicon where people understand That the reason people don't, far fewer Americans die in house fires, is because of fire safety regulations, fire escapes, fire stairwells, detectors, smoke detectors. Uh, You know, is is there finally a a recognition that we need to have like sort of a fire safety approach to this, which then in turn does become a selling point? Just really quickly from each of you, Mark, maybe if you want to start us off, and then Jim, and then we can get to the ransomware
2: issue. Well, I mean, I do. I mean, I'd go back to. I like to look at this more broadly, like, you know, there's going to need to be some sort of regulatory approach. And we're gonna have to be A, extremely flexible between different types of industries. What's required is different. And that's why, like most most seatbelts or fire skips, everything tend to be traditional across all types of cars and things. But I think the regulatory environment for cyber is going to be much different. You know, it's going to have to be flexible. B, it's going to have to, we have to get some kind of harmonization and fairness. Like I get mad at the financial services people for opposing everything. They do have a legitimate beef that, you know, uh, they, they have, you know, they're on a constant lookout for like proposed rulemaking by the government because they could get regulated from out of nowhere by apparently almost anybody. So I do think we need to achieve harmonization. I'll be disappointed if the uh, cyber strategy doesn't really take a hard whack at that. And maybe task OMB, it has OIRA under it, whatever, of a, an, as as an agency a, and the national cyber director to try to achieve some kind of harmonization to, to show the private sector where the private sector is working hard, like in financial services, and and I think they do work hard there on cybersecurity for, for selfish and um, unselfish purposes, um, you know, give them some recognition with the harmonization, and then, and then finally, I do think. It- the very large utilities where they don't have a lot of money, like I think a water here, some and maybe hospitals and, and uh, old folks homes and things like that. You know, we're going to have to like band together. You know, the government and private sector are going to have to set like a floor, a stand, you know, a minimum standard. That's probably because of the large number of organizations um, assessed by a third party or by trade associations. Because I don't think you could build EPA at this point. EPA is so under resourced; it would take a decade, I think, to build them up right. to be doing a, an actual cybersecurity. So, I think with those, those three kind of, you know, thought processes of, you know, uh, of, um, of of having um, ranges of cybersecurity, of of having, um, you know, um, of of having opportunities for the private sector setting them. And finally, I would say there needs to be some incentivization. To the degree that, especially when we're talking about medium-sized businesses, we have to start thinking about incentivization of this, which is going to mean, probably, I, I think, tax tax incentives will be the you know not the easiest, but the most reasonable way to achieve that.
0: Uh, and I should point out to our audience, uh, OIRA is the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and they oversee the Information Quality Act. Uh, and uh, a lot of other uh, important uh, uh, regulation. Uh, Jim, uh, last word on this before we move uh, to uh, uh, both S bombs uh, as well as uh, ransomware in the time we have left. Go ahead.
1: Sure. And one thing to remember is the rest of the world is moving in the direction of uh, greater regulation. Uh, the, so if you're a global company, you're going to have to deal with the Europeans, you're going to have to deal with the Japanese. Uh, You're going to have to deal with uh, all your big markets. So we have a chance here. Regulation is always a Goldilocks problem. If you do it like the Europeans, if you do too much, you hurt economic growth. If you do too little, which has been our approach in the past, uh, you end up getting beaten about the head and shoulders by your opponents. So the task for the next year will be to find, the next few years will be to find that Goldilocks approach that goes down the middle enough regulation to protect us, but not enough to hurt uh, growth. I think we can do it. We've done it in the past. Uh, th- there were some bills in Congress that um, looking more at data and privacy and uh, open the Open Apps Market Act that were a little too European for my taste. And we have to be careful of the fact that we absolutely need to regulate, but we wanna do it in a way that doesn't kill our tech industry.
0: Um, Let me uh, go uh, flip the order, Mark, uh, get your sense on SBOM. Uh, and HBOM. One is software uh, bill of origin and materials. The other is hardware bill of origin and materials. And and as Jim said, right, I mean, it's sort of stunning to recognize uh, that even some of our more sensitive systems could have Russian and Chinese uh, software in them and certainly uh, Chinese hardware uh, in them. The administration is launching a process in order to be able to vet that for key national security systems. Um, And folks don't really have a good number. Chairman Langevin didn't have a good number. I've asked uh, Mike Gallagher this question uh, in the past, as well as Angus King and many others. How you know? Once we do this, we've got to be comfortable with the startling results of it. And then either we'll have to bite a financial bullet and pay for it or do what the Europeans are doing, for example, with Huawei hardware and saying, well, look, we're going to do the best we can to protect ourselves. But it may be you know, a decade before we swap this hardware app because we can't afford it. What, what do we know about where we are on both software and hardware vulnerabilities and what the national cost of addressing these vulnerabilities will be? Um, Frank Kendall, the Air Force Secretary's attitude is, unless you don't, if you don't put this in your contracts, there's no way for us to beat this problem. Uh, so it has to be a disciplined process from start to finish. Where do you think we are? How much is the bill and are we going to pay that, right? I mean, are we going to spend $30 billion on, on fixing hardware and software vulnerabilities, or would we rather spend that money on more warships and precision munitions instead?
2: I'll start that. Where do we think we are? I think we're in trouble. And how much is it going to cost? I, I'm not sure, but I bet $30 is a low number. I, what I would do here is I'd prioritize it. I'd start with my national security systems my national security communication systems. And, and I think that's reasonable. And the IC in the, in the military, taking a look at those, making sure those are protected. In other words, you have to do, this is true for critical. It's true for almost anything we look at in cybersecurity. If you attempt to eat the whole elephant, it becomes, you, you decide very quickly that you're going to learn to live with risk, right? What you have to do is break the elephant up. And in this case, I'd, I'd break off the most critical things that matter to me. Um, and, 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 that in, in the military, that would be the national security communication systems. I then start looking at weapon systems and I'd prioritize it there again. You know, am I worried about an AAV, an amphibious assault vehicle? Not near as much as I am about, say, is my Elrasmer uh, or long range anti-ship cruise missile line compromised? Um, you know, those kind of things, the things that I, that I really think are war winning, you know, I'd prioritize that and start to work through it. I, I, and, I, and I agree with Frank Kendall that you need to build this into future contracts, um, but I'd be aware of the bill you're going to get, at, You know, and I'd probably do it with a handful of contracts, get an idea of what the costing is. Hey, this increases the cost of a contract six to 9%, you know, something, you know, whatever the number is, you know, as uh, not just for the cost of checking your supply chain, but then clearing out secondary and tertiary supply chain providers that don't meet whatever specification required. And so to me, this is a real this is going to be this is going to be a, a long slog. I'd prioritize things. If you don't, you'll do nothing. We have a long history of that, of looking at a problem, realizing it's gargantuan and moving forward without you know solving it. I think what we have to do is, is take this uh, part, prioritize parts at a time. Jim,
1: but who's telling you it's going to cost a lot of money? I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, a Giant company from one of our major Asian allies called me up and said uh, the head of their Washington I said, um, "Is it a problem that most of our software is written in China?" Um, well, I don't think the answer to that is too hard to figure out. I'm. I wonder if you know when people don't want to do things. They always say it costs a lot. So let's give it a try. Sure, we should prioritize, but some of the stuff is pretty basic. Knowing who you bought this software from one reason people don't want to say that is because in um, previous studies we found you buy a software product but the vendor has you reused code that you previously paid for and they're using open source the god knows where it came from but it's it's cost free so uh, don't don't get hung up on the cost I mean prioritize sure but um, you know this is sort of basic uh, basic hygiene and I'm I don't I, Knowing who you bought from should not be that expensive.
0: Uh, um, Mark, do you want to do you have a counterpoint uh, to that uh, before we quickly hit uh, ransomware? And I want to get your prediction on what you guys think the biggest cyber threat uh, will be, even though we're going to have another program at the start of the year uh, to take a look at what has to happen uh, and what need to be the big stories of the year. But go ahead.
2: So I agree with um, Jim that finding out who your software comes from might be inexpensive. I will say that I think the bill that Frank Kendall's worried about is when you decide that when you find out that secondary and tertiary suppliers are compromised and, or they're using open source, things like that. And then the cost to reme, you know, the cost to realign yourself. I don't even think there'll be remediation. I think that dog, you know, that, 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 you know, that, that, that horse is out of the barn, but, um, but going forward, I think there may be an increase in cost of contracts. But I would tell you, I don't mind paying that. It, just think, think if you said to yourself, "Hey, we're getting a new um, surface-to-air missile. It's this neat HQ9 that the Chinese produce, and we're gonna go ahead and put it on the new Constellation-class frigates." Tell me who, who in the U.S. military is signing off on that? No one. So why would you right. think it's okay to get software, you know, from from state-owned enterprises or things like that? So I, I, I again, I agree that the cost of finding out what's going on could be reasonable and the cost of some ways going forward may be reasonable. But there will be some bills that are kind of that make your stomach hurt. I will tell you right now, we're not we're not going to find a different magnet producer for the F-35. Right.
0: And thankfully, right. I mean, the magnet's not doing anything uh, or at least we don't think doing anything bad in and of itself. Right. I mean, there are things that we can, uh, you know, not to channel our mutual friend, Eric Sayers, but it's like, you know, there's a whole bunch of things we can actually buy from the Chinese that aren't technologically sophisticated and and, you know, don't don't really matter to us. And just to put in a word there for Secretary Kendall, um, you know, his attitude has been, uh, in interview after interview, the fundamental importance of the surety of our systems, right? I mean, he said, it doesn't much matter if we have some of the best hardware in the world, if it's if it can be cyber compromised at the time when we need to use it. So it has to be a priority and... Um, you know, will be uh, and, and has been reflected, I think, in, in some of the services uh, planning uh, and budgeting. Really quick, that um, we don't have a lot of time left, uh, and it's important for me to get your guys' take. Ransomware uh, was a very big story uh, this year. A lot of activity on the administration's part, uh, on the diplomatic front, uh, a lot of messaging from the president directly to foreign leaders on this uh, and the world. You know, still some state and municipal governments being hit from uh, your guys' standpoint. Have we made as much progress uh, very briefly on the ransomware issue? I mean, was this sort of a landmark watershed year? Or is it like Dmitry Alperovich likes to say $24 million goes a long way on the Russian Riviera. They hit you, they're going to go away, they'll come back when they want more money.
1: You know, ransomware has been a diplomatic success for the administration in that they've managed to get, you know, 35, 40 countries in the room to talk about cybersecurity at the White House. That's a big step forward. I don't worry about it as much because the ransomware is very sophisticated. They're not gonna put you out of business. Um, There are basic things that we all know now that can reduce the risk of being a victim getting more companies to do that would be good but you know if we if we fix ransomware the cyber criminals will just find something else because the fundamental problem is there are a couple countries that provide sanctuary for criminals and as long as they're untouchable they're not going to stop but ransomware um you know the thing that excited people of course was colonial pipeline which is a weird story in itself but Overall, we seem to be getting a handle on it. FBI has been doing good at clawing back some of the money. So it was one of those, uh, you know, that you get these internet memes, and the internet meme in cybersecurity for last year was ransomware bad. Next year we'll have a different meme.
2: Mark. So I think ransomware is still grossly underreported, and you know, by by the victims, and I think it's a still a big growth industry. I share Jim's uh, slightly cynical view that it's maybe not be so bad if it's if it's helping uh, improve cybersecurity efforts at small and medium sized businesses as they gear up. They would have never geared up to deal with cyber malicious activity because they'd have said that's not going to happen to me or I don't have anything worth taking. But they sh- but since uh, ransomware basically makes uh, con- you know makes data monetizable. Um, it has, you know, it can affect almost any company. So I do believe it's improving our security that way. I agree with Jim that it's good for our diplomatic work on all cyber issues. I will say, I think it's going to remain Tate. It's going to remain a growth industry. I got to tell you that MetaBank attack in, in uh, Australia with the releasing of really personal and private information about medical conditions and procedures people had had. If that happens in the United States in 2023, all hell is going to break loose in our litigious society. Uh so um we'll have to see. I think ransomware will be a big issue again, but you know, I secretly hold a cynical view that it ha- does help drive uh medium and small size businesses to think more about cybersecurity and make the proper investments.
0: Uh and uh very quickly in 10 seconds from either view, what is going to be the biggest uh cyber biggest cyber threat of 2023? Jim. Ooh,
1: that's a hard one. I you know, I the, everyone's always worried that the Russians will be tempted to do something bad. I would say China, but China's already sort of at 100%. So there's not a heck of a lot more they could do. But it's the usual stuff. I think state opponents are the most dangerous. Uh, the Iranians are getting better, but they
2: they're focused on trying to beat up Israel. So watch Russia, uh, watch China. Mark? So for Angus King, I'd say it's Paul Nakasone retiring (laughs) next May, but uh, since I'm not, I'll uh, you know, I'll I'll agree that, you know, I think the state opponents are a big one. I think Russia will, I think if things go badly in the spring, uh, Russia's gonna have to hold someone accountable. And since it's not gonna be Putin, you know, it's gonna be Western Europe critical infrastructure or US critical infrastructure. So I would be, I'd be shields up, so to speak, to use Jenny's leave for that. Uh, You know, for for that kind of future. And I agree completely on Israel. It's all about Iran and on North Korea. It's all about the dollars, not about attacking us.
0: Um, and, and the Russians are very good at executing set piece operations, right? So, I mean, they could be planning something right now as they did on Solar Winds, uh, even if they're not as agile uh, when things start changing. Guys, thanks very, very much. Really appreciate it. Hope you guys have very happy uh, holidays and a happy, healthy uh, and prosperous uh, new year and look forward to collaborating in 2023 as we have these many years. Thank you so very much to both of you and hope, uh, wish you all the very best. Thanks.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you, Vago. Happy holidays.